2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn how residents of rural areas are accessing far away vaccination sites.
3: And we hear from a high school leader on racial equity and the importance of recruiting more teachers of color.
1: Students that are exposed to having a teacher of color are more likely to graduate and attend college.
2: Plus, we'll have more on how the vaccine rollout is going for educators. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
3: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Getting shots into the arms of Mountain West residents is tricky when you factor in transportation. Vulnerable people in urban areas need rides to appointments. Meanwhile, rural residents without transportation often live miles away from vaccination sites. KUNC's Robin Vincent has more on the less acknowledged component of the vaccine rollout.
0: 74-year-old Diane Huntress lives in Denver and says trying to get a COVID shot for her and her husband is like applying for a job.
1: They can't talk to anyone. There's no phone number. All the emails we get say, do not reply. The problem is, where can I go? Can I get there? And when are they going to have it? She says
0: it's all anyone can think about in her social circle. I can't
1: see anybody, an acquaintance on Zoom, without the question, have you gotten the vaccine yet?
0: And for Huntress and her husband, it's not just finding an appointment, it's getting there too. They can't afford a car. And in the age of COVID, they're hesitant to take public transit or a group ride. Instead, they'll use the nonprofit Colorado Car Share and pay $6.50 an hour plus mileage to borrow a car. That option is available in Denver and Boulder so far. For rural residents scattered across the Mountain West, this type of service may not be accessible. Plus, the distances to vaccination sites are often much, much greater. Shonda Schrader is with University of North Dakota's Center for Rural Health. She says when it comes to states' vaccination plans, transportation was. This forgotten variable, not intentionally, just not factored into all the barriers they were anticipating for the vaccine rollout. If the pandemic has taught us anything, though, it's rapid innovation. Dr. Richard Zane is chair of emergency medicine at University of Colorado. He's spearheading ways to get underserved communities vaccinated, like pop-up clinics in rural areas.
4: And it may be that there are only 500 people in that community that need to be vaccinated, in which case we'll just do it once or enough to get the entire community
0: Some will have a hard time making it to those neighborhood sites, though. An estimated 1.9 million Americans, age 65 or older, are fully or largely homebound. And more than 5 million face limitations that make leaving their homes a difficult task.
2: Well, it's a huge issue, I and mean, it isn't just an issue with COVID.
0: That's Marianne Harvey with Disability Law Colorado. She points out that healthcare care access for people who have mobility issues is a long-simmering problem.
1: Particularly in rural
5: areas of the state, where there is not public transportation and people are widely dispersed.
0: For his part, Dr. Richard Zane is working with local leaders in Colorado to address this. And he says a bigger solution is on the horizon.
4: The game changer, we hope, is going to be the Johnson and Johnson vaccine.
0: The J&J vaccine, as Zane often calls it, is only one dose and has a longer shelf life than the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Zane says those two-dose vaccines present big logistical challenges. So he's hoping
4: that the combination of having developed the playbook essentially for pop-up clinics and the relationships with the community providers in addition to the single-dose, highly effective, less logistically cumbersome vaccine is going to have significant impact.
0: He sees health providers being able to visit someone's home to administer the J&J shot. In the meantime, outreach falls on many local health departments in the region, and they're getting creative too. Eric Merchant is with Lewis and Clark Public Health in Montana. We have rural populations that have transportation barriers, and in the wintertime, That's complicated even further, of course. That's especially true in his sprawling rural county. It's more than three times the size of Rhode Island, with a population of roughly 69,000 people. Nearly half those residents live outside the county seat and state capital of Helena. So, Merchant and his team converted passenger vans into mobile clinics. We've reached out and done events in both Augusta and Lincoln, Montana, which are both more than an hour's drive from Helena over mountain passes. Still, Merchant acknowledges there's a long road ahead to reach everyone. Meanwhile, rideshare services Uber and Lyft have announced partnerships with cities and organizations to offer free rides. Representatives from both services say they'll have more information on exactly how this will work in our region in the coming weeks. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent.
3: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. Also, in the coming weeks, many Coloradans will become eligible to receive the coronavirus vaccine under the latest major changes to the state's vaccine distribution timeline. Starting March 5th, Coloradans 60 and older will be eligible, as will anyone 16 or older with two or more high risk
2: conditions. The state then estimates that beginning in late March, a huge swath of Coloradans will gain eligibility. That group would include higher education faculty and staff, news that was welcomed by college leaders in the state who are eyeing a return to campus in the fall. To talk more about how the vaccine rollout is going in the world of education and what it all means for students, teachers, and schools, we're joined by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: Who is going to gain eligibility in higher education under this current iteration?
5: So the governor announced on Friday that there's going to be a new Phase 1B4 that is essential workers who weren't covered under earlier phases. And one of those groups is student-facing instructors and staff at higher education institutions. So this could be professors, this could be adjuncts, but it could also be staff that have student-facing positions.
2: And they would join a group of educators who have already been eligible in receiving the vaccine for a few weeks now, right?
5: That's right. Eligibility opened February 8th for K-12 school staff and child care workers. And as of this past weekend, about 75 percent of the 120,000 eligible Folks in that category have received their first shot. Obviously, it's a few more weeks out until they get everybody who's interested and, and get full immunity after that second shot. But they have made quite a bit of progress on vaccinating K-12 and child care workers.
2: This recent news, the update to the vaccine distribution plan was received well by leaders in higher education. Does it mean any changes for how school might look this semester or will it mostly impact maybe summer semester or the fall?
5: The the big difference here is really giving some peace of mind and protection to folks who have already been teaching in person. In Colorado, we haven't made reopening either at the K 12 or the higher ed level contingent on vaccination. It's been more in relationship to community transmission levels. And so when eligibility opened for K 12 staff, there were some questions about why aren't higher ed included in this as they are in some other states. And Governor Polis said, you know, well, a 20 year old can learn online a lot better than a seven-year-old, but there's actually been this whole time, whether it's community college classes, like hands-on stuff, like auto mechanics and welding, and even, you know, classroom instruction at four-year universities, all of this to some degree has been in-person, and we've seen both CU and CSU come back with sort of partial in-person schedules already, so I think the big difference here is is peace of mind. And I think going forward, we can see shifts to quarantine policies as more people become vaccinated.
2: Well, we talked about how middle school and high school teachers and support staff have been getting the vaccine for a while. How has that been changing return to school plans across the state?
5: Across Colorado, a lot of middle and high school students, even if they've been in person, they've been in person on these hybrid schedules that were intended to reduce class size. And we're seeing a big push to bring these students back full time, whether that's four or five days a week. Different districts have different schedules and plans, but mostly they're built around coming back full time in person after spring break. And some of this is facilitated by more school staff becoming vaccinated The hope is that with that protection, you don't need to be quite as worried about classroom transmission, though there's obviously still, some people will still be concerned for students. And I think there's been a concern that with this hybrid schedule, that student engagement might be lower on the days that students are remote or doing asynchronous work, and that they're losing out on learning time. So there's just been this big push to get them back in the classroom more. And I think we're going to see that increasingly across the state
2: how does student vaccination factor into these return to school plans
5: you know right now the vaccine isn't authorized for folks who are younger than 16 and it's going to be a while until those folks become eligible with you know the exception of maybe some people with health conditions we're hearing different things about when younger children might become eligible maybe it would be in the fall maybe it would be in 2022 I think it's definitely a concern that's out there for some families, but I don't see it driving the school opening conversation. I do think it will be interesting to see if, this, if there's a push to make this a required vaccine once it's available to children. In Colorado, we are one of the states that makes it easier to opt out of vaccines. We're not super into requiring parents to get their kids vaccinated. But I could see that being potentially a pretty heated debate.
2: Erica Melter is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks as always for speaking with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
3: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
2: I'm Henry Zimmerman.
3: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Last month, former NFL wide receiver and University of Northern Colorado student-athlete Vincent Jackson was found dead in Tampa, Florida. He was 38 years old. And though the cause of his death is still under investigation, Jackson's family has donated his brain to Boston University's Center for Chronic Traumatic
2: Encephalopathy. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, more commonly known as CTE, is a degenerative brain disease that has been found in the brains of many former football players. Researchers have found a strong connection between CTE and repeated traumatic brain injuries, like concussions. To help us better understand CTE and how it affects our brains, we're joined by Dr. Chris Nowinski. He is a researcher at Boston University's CTE Center, and he also co-founded the Concussion Legacy Foundation in 2007 after seeking help for his own post-concussion symptoms related to his time as a college football player. Dr. Nowinski, welcome to Colorado Edition.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: You study brains, most notably the brains of football players and other athletes after they've died— but clues of CTE present themselves in athletes while they're alive. Can you tell us more about the signs and symptoms of the disease while people are still with us and what we can learn from looking at their brains after they pass away?
4: CT is most clearly associated with progressive cognitive impairment, and it's often mistaken for Alzheimer's disease. People start having problems with uh, short-term memory and then eventually long-term memory and eventually progress into dementia. Prior to that, we see problems with behavior and mood. So uh, a lot of the folks diagnosed with CTE have been battling depression. Uh, Many of them have been battling impulse control problems or have been diagnosed as bipolar or have aggression issues or have substance abuse problems. And what does CTE look
2: like when you find and examine it in a brain?
4: We're picking up that a, a lot of the people who develop CT, a, and even those who don't who played a long sports career, develop white matter changes. So the, the long, slender axons that are part of every neuron that are one one hundredth the width of a human hair are surrounded by a, a cell that looks white. And that can break down because of the stretching of that axon. And so you see this white matter degeneration, and that is almost certainly causing symptoms but it's much harder to piece together because it's a little more randomly distributed than the CT pathology. But right now, we're, we're sort of getting this idea, this global idea that you know, even without CT per se, people who've been hit and head thousands of times are more likely to have other problems neurologically.
2: Can you give us some context for this field of research? Because it feels like there's been a ton of research done in the last 10 or so years. How has it changed since you've been involved?
4: Yeah, 95% of the research on CT has been done in the last 15 years. CT was first described widely as punch drunk because it was first identified in the 1920s in boxers. And I don't know if it's a medical bias or, or what it was, but there really was not a lot of research into this. Statistically, we have diagnosed 700 people with CT over the last 13 years at our brain bank. But before we started our brain bank, there were only 45 cases ever diagnosed in the world and published in the literature. This disease exists in all people who are exposed to repetitive brain trauma, football players, hockey players, rugby players, soccer players, and people who serve in the military, especially those who are exposed to blast, and people who are victims of trauma and abuse. So it is much more widely recognized now. In 2008, when our Concussion Legacy Foundation partnered with Boston University and the VA to start this research program, we were the first in the world dedicated to CT.
2: Now, you mentioned the brain bank, and I think that's a super interesting part of all this. Tell us more about that and how families come to donate the brains of their loved ones for this type of research.
4: So the brain bank, it's grown so rapidly and now its over a thousand brains that it's spread across three hospitals. In 2005, the first ever NFL player uh, had his brain studied and published in a medical journal. And I thought, this is really important work. And so I started calling families when I would learn about an NFL player passing away and uh, asking them if they would donate their loved one's brain to research. And the first family was Andre Waters, who died in 2006. And and frankly, if, if they weren't so generous with me, this work may never happen. So they were they were wonderful. And that first brain diagnosed showed CTE, and that led to me calling people for years. And as the awareness of the work has continued, uh, thankfully now families call us most of the time, so I don't have to monitor the obituaries as closely as I, I used to. Do you ever find yourself getting pushback in this research from
2: from people who maybe don't want the ethics of football or other sports to be called into question?
4: Yes, we do get pushback. Um, The pushback has evolved over time. You know, it was much stronger and in our face at the beginning. Um, You know, 2007 uh, was sort of when this became a national discussion. And, you know, we were called, you know, charlatans and, and kooks and, you know, we're doing it for research dollars or whatever it was. And then what this CT research forces everyone to do is change. You know, if, if we had published studies saying every year you play tackle football, increases your odds of developing CT by as much as 30%. Um, if that's the case, we should probably not have children playing this game. And the reality is people don't like change. They don't like being told what to do. So um, we have created, you know, lots of enemies.
2: You yourself played American football and were actually a professional wrestler in your early twenties. And during that time experienced several concussions how do you look back on your own experience as you do more research and learn more about our brains and what happens as a result of these kind of impacts?
4: I used to be a guinea pig for our early studies and would go into the scans and all of that. And then um, you realize that, that constantly wondering and worrying about if you have CTE can be very stressful and negative. And, and frankly, if I knew I had CTE today, I'm not sure how it would affect me. I don't, I don't want to know. So it does force reflection. And, you know, what I try to do is turn that negative energy and anxiety into the, the passion I have for this research and the, the urgency of it. I'm trying to channel that into something positive because it's sort of crazy to think that the choice of the sport that I quote unquote chose when I was 13 would affect, you know, how I might parent my children and what kind of father I am, what kind of husband I am, you know, how, how long I can work before cognitive problems set in. So sometimes when I am talking to other athletes who are concerned, I remind them, look, we're all going to die of something. So let's not dwell on this one too much from a negative perspective, but let's try to channel this energy into something positive.
2: Of the first 111 brains of former NFL players you studied, 110 of them were positive for CTE, which is just astonishing. Given that information, what do you think the average American should know about head injuries or contact sports, or maybe just specifically American football.
4: 110 was 10% of the NFL players who died over that study period. So the minimum prevalence of CT in NFL players is, is 10%. And it could be as high as, you know, 90%. It's probably somewhere around the middle. That's a huge number. Like if we just changed the word CT to brain cancer, like you'd shut down a game of football, right? But for some reason, we, you know, we aren't looking at it that way. I think the simple answer is let, let's just stop getting hit in the head so much. And if you are going to choose to get hit in the head, let's make sure that people who are doing it are old enough to understand the risks that they're exposing themselves to. And if they still want to do it that stage, you know, let's also make that as safe as possible.
3: That was Dr. Chris Nowinski, a researcher at Boston University's CTE Center. On Monday, we spoke with Brandon Charles, Assistant Athletic Director and Chief of Football Operations at the University of Northern Colorado about the life and career of Vincent Jackson, former NFL-wide receiver and UNC Bear. You can find that interview and other past shows at our website, KUNC.org.
2: In February, the Denver Public Library announced recipients of their annual Juanita Gray Community Service Award. The award honors African-American community leaders who make outstanding contributions to the Denver metro area. It is named after the late Denver librarian Juanita Gray, who was highly regarded for her community outreach work in the 1960s and 70s.
3: Jayla Hemphill is the recipient of this year's Youth Award. Hemphill is a 17-year-old senior at Northfield High School in Denver, and she joins us now. Jayla, welcome. Hi. One of the reasons you were nominated for this award is because of your participation and speech at the Denver Public Schools Black Lives Matter rally last summer. What did you speak about?
1: I spoke about a myriad of things, but ultimately it came down to the issue of racial equity. But most of the work that I do in terms of community service and volunteering is the connection between racial equity, education, and gun control.
3: Well, another reason that you were nominated for this award and something you just mentioned is your advocacy for stricter gun control laws in Colorado. What has made you such a strong advocate for this particular cause?
1: This was an issue that I uh, grappled with a lot growing up. When I was around eight years old, there was both the Trayvon Martin shooting and the Sandy Hook shooting. So in the same year, it had to be explained to me that one- Yes, people absolutely target you due to the color of your skin. And unfortunately, there's not much that can be done about it unless you are in the political scheme of things. Uh, but in addition to that, there's very little justice for those uh, situations where people are targeted for the color of their skin. Uh, secondly, the Sandy Hook shooting, I, I remember pretty vividly sitting in the classroom I was in fourth grade and it had to be explained to me by my teacher that there were going to be new procedures in our school. One of them was we had to travel in pairs uh, every time we left the classroom. And if there was a lockdown or a drill while we were out of the classroom, we were under no circumstances allowed back in. Which while it was of course meant for the protection of the students, today it translates more to Well, it's better for two of you to get shot than one. So that entire issue uh, and having to face those things and those dangers at eight years old is a huge reason why I think on a national scale, we need to um, improve our protection of not only people of color but students in the classroom.
3: I want to ask about another one of your um, efforts that you're um, working on, and that is recruiting more teachers of color at Northfield High School and really within the whole Denver public school system. What issues are you trying to address by hiring more teachers of color?
1: Having done a fair bit of research on the necessity of teachers of color, um, there are multiple benefits to it. For example students that are exposed to having a teacher of color early in their elementary years between kindergarten and third grade are more likely to graduate and attend college. However, for students of color, uh, while the same statistics are true, much of it comes down to the issue of representation. And that can mean several things. In English classes, it can mean that there are harmful stereotypes that are pushed in books and what we read, but they're not being properly addressed because no one's picking up on them, but that black kid in the back of the room. In history, it can mean that there are justifications for certain historical actions that are made and not fully addressed to the fullest extent because nobody sees a problem with it because they're not a part of the racial group that was affected by it. Getting out that student voice and allowing students to take control of their learning is the largest driving aspect of the work that I do. So while I have been working on a bit of an initiative for it that would push for hopefully mandating, but at least getting more CDLs, uh, which is culture and diversity licenses for teachers, mandating those things would make it so much easier for students of color to express themselves in the classroom, but it would at the very least make sure that they are to some extent understood beyond the inherent beliefs of a white teacher.
3: Well, Jayla, you have accomplished a lot in your high school career, and it sounds like you have a lot of incredible ideas to work toward. I'm wondering what is next for you?
1: In the spring of 2022, I will be going to Tulane University down in New Orleans. But as for right now, for the remaining time in 2021, which feels like forever, (laughs) I, um, I'm hoping to attend a university here in Colorado up until spring, but moving on to things that are somewhat more interesting because nobody wants to talk about the next four years. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> After that, I'm hoping to go to law school. So I was accepted as a political science major and a minor in sociology and going to law school. I want to study family law and help out the underserved and low-income communities that are subject to different sorts of abuse or they are more likely to indulge in drugs, et cetera.
3: Jayla Hemphill is a 17-year-old senior at Northfield High School. She is the youth recipient of the 2021 Juanita Gray Community Service Award from the Denver Public Library. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: That's our show for today. Tomorrow, we'll learn more about the graduating class of an inclusive higher education program at the University of Northern Colorado. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
3: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
2: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.